All right, so we are looking at John G. Patton today. I'm having a little bit different of a setup here, so just bear with me. So far, so good. All right, he was born May 24th. There's a picture of him. May 24th, 1824 in Scotland. And he died January 1907 at the ripe old age of 81. So he lived a lot longer than the last couple guys that we've talked about in Australia. Obviously, if he was born in Scotland, he is Scottish. He had godly parents and nine siblings. He had a spectacular beard, as you can see there. You can't see your face if you can. You can't see my face? You're blocked by this whole screen. I am? Again? Yeah. Give the people what they want. My face. So you have to go towards the door? It's very strange. It's good now. You're good now. Um, he had godly parents and he had nine siblings. His father had a shop repairing stockings, because apparently that was a thing back then. And John used to work there and he spent his off time studying theology and preparing for the missions field. So he always kind of, he didn't have a dramatic conversion story. He didn't really have anyone that I could find. And he just kind of always knew that he wanted to go into the missions field. He was brought up in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And they had a very, very strong missions focus uh, back then. A plea for more missionaries went out and reached the church. And Patton said, that's for me. I'm going out on the mission field. There was also, in the 19th century there, just a huge uh, missions movement happening right now, in, at that time anyway. So it was kind of in the air, and the Reformed Presbyterian Church definitely had a strong missions focus as well. So let's talk about some key life themes. And really, the most of the time we're going to talk about is his missions work in New Hebrides, which is actually, come on now, Come on now. Remote control work. There we go. Just so you have an idea, that landmass to the left is Australia. And so New Hebrides is a string of 80 islands in the South Pacific Ocean. So really far away, kind of in the middle of nowhere. It is now called Vanuatu. It saw some action in World War II for various strategic air bases, as you can see why as you can see why, a strategic place in the South Pacific. But it also has very, very hostile and cannibalistic natives. The first two missionaries that landed there in 1839 were killed and eaten by cannibals within minutes of arriving on the beach. Mm. There is some more slide information now that you know where they are. Cannibals, and it's like you spent some time looking at why people, why are they cannibals? But they showed their dominance over their defeated enemies by eating them. It's not just beating them, but defeating them, murdering them, and then eating them as well. So he decided it'd be a really good idea if he went to New Hebrides as well. So he went there with his brand new wife at age 33. It took them seven months to get there. No missionaries had ever stayed before there. And his first island, as you might have seen from that little circle there, there are a lot of over 80 islands. There was a ton of islands. He spent most of his time on two of the islands. The first one was Tana in 1858. It was an absolutely terrible, terrible environment, as you might suspect. There was death. There was sickness. 
the environment was terrible with the rainy season, malaria was rampant, and of course then you had the little problem of hostile cannibalistic natives who wanted to kill you. His wife died four months after they arrived there and their newborn baby shortly thereafter. Her dying words said that she was not lost, but she was only gone before to be forever with the Lord. And she also said before she died that she regretted nothing of her decision to go to these islands to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he then served the next four years alone in constant danger and adversity until he was driven off the island in 1862. From there, he spent a couple years mobilizing missions efforts to get back there. So not only did he, you know, get driven off the island, he lost his wife, he lost his newborn son, but as soon as he got back, he just organized efforts to get more missionaries to go back there. And from what we can tell, he was very successful at it. He was extraordinarily effective at it to mobilize people to get there. So then... We kind of have part two. He remarried and he went back to the Hebrides Islands. He took his wife back there, but he went on a different island this time, the island of Aniwa, and he served there for 41 years until he died at 81. And his wife died uh, two years prior to that. So his wife was with him for 39 years, pretty much all 40, 41 years. Again, as you, might, as you might figure out, Aniwa wasn't much better than, than Tana. It, too, had constant adversity, sickness, danger, fear of life. These guys, again, were truly pagan natives. They were cannibals. They practiced infanticide. They practiced widow sacrifice. They had zero uh, traditional morality, so lying was normative to them, stealing was normative to them, uh, you know, murder pretty much, all of that stuff. So uh, Patton couldn't really wrap his head around, like, first of all, just like, how do you even... Exist as a society. Yeah, like, how do you treat, how do you talk to people, how do you, there's no, all the social norms that you know are gone. They don't exist. And also... You might be dead if you say something wrong, right? So that was the environment. But he was there for 41 years. He translated the New Testament into the Aniwan language. And many other books, many other catechisms. He kept extensive journals, and he actually wrote an autobiography, which we have a lot of that for. And now if we look back near over 100 years after his death, 92% of those islands identify as Christians. 41% of them, they'd say, is evangelical. So he was very effective in, I guess, starting that missions movement and the spread of the gospel. So what do we think about some observations? Tertullian has a famous quote, perhaps you've heard before. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What does that mean? Blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The ultimate sacrifice? Yeah. For fertile yeah. work of God? Yeah. So the martyrs, the missionaries that shed their blood, right, in taking the gospel to these unreached people, and some of them died, right, gave their life for it, 
that was a sacrifice that served to only motivate other people to then go. And so we see that we see that in the New Testament all the time, right? Stephen being the, the first martyr, right? All of the it, it it only actually motivates people see others giving their lives for the cause of the gospel, and they are emboldened to do that. Right? So, hey there. So when we talk about that, we, that still happens today, right? So we still have martyrs today. We still have, it wasn't that long ago, a couple of years back, right? We had the Coptic Christians on the beach with ISIS. How many, how many dozen of them, dozens of them were martyred, right? And that still emboldens other people to go into the missions field and take the gospel to hostile and unreached people groups, right? So I think that is, that is still the case. The blood of martyrs still continues to be the seed of the church. But what about an awareness of missions efforts? Like, is this something in our world, do we even think about this? Do we even consider missions work? What's going on? What's happening? Are we trying to acquaint ourselves with missions efforts around the world? Uh, do we know what that looks like? There's magazines such as Voice of the Martyrs. That are free. That will tell you all about what's going on in, in different environments, right? Every year they usually have one. This is one about or every month they usually have one. Egypt. And then they're talking about the missions efforts. And, and it, it's something to be familiar with. It's something, especially as Americans, we can get very kind of tunnel vision, right? And we don't really see what's going on around the world. And we need to work to kind of inform ourselves with that perspective. But, but how are we involved in missions, right? I thought of just three things. You know, are we giving towards missions? Are we actively, regularly praying for the missionaries that we support and for God to raise up new missionaries and for the conversion of people all over the world? And maybe is God calling us to go? Is God tapping you on the shoulder? Is God giving you a burden? How would you know? Like this, I mean, I'm just kind of true, true transparency here. I'm kind of wrestling with this, right? Because you run across a giant like this guy who just gave up so much to take uh, the gospel to a people group, and you can't help but feel like, yeah, I'm a. <laughs> I sit in an air conditioned office with books and a comfy chair, and I don't have malaria, or probably not going to get killed when I walk out the door and eaten by cannibals. You just feel very privileged and like, that's not me. Should it be me? Like, don't panic. You know, should it, should. <laughs> but you feel like, how do we know though, like it, practically speaking, if the Lord should call you to a place like that, what do you think that would look like? What sorts of things would be on your radar if, you really started to work through, wow, maybe the Lord is calling me to some place. I think he would put a burden on your heart to, to go, to do something. Yeah. And then he would open doors yeah. for that to happen. Yeah. Like, there have been times in the last <coughs> three years that I've tried so hard to be like, oh, I want to Florida because I want to work for this ministry that's on my heart. Like, yeah. But no doors have opened. Yeah. So it's like, obviously, then God doesn't want me there. Right. Not like you can you can even be burdened for something and God not 
really want you there. He just wants you to pray for it, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Those are two really good things because the Lord works a lot through circumstances, right? And, and very often if there's an open door, like walk through it. And if you're not supposed to be there, then it's going to become apparent very, very quickly that you're not supposed to be there. But sometimes if you walk through one door, God's going to open another door and another door and another door, right? But I liked what you said, Tony, about the, uh, the Lord putting a burden on your heart. Right? You might leap through, leaf through uh, Voice of the Martyrs and read about a people group and just, just feel burdened for them, you know, for kind of an inexplicable kind of reason. But that would be the Holy Spirit tugging at you, you know, saying, that, well, then what, what can I do? You know, what, what missionaries are actually reaching these people? Or how can I go? Or maybe even if we're in a position to actually go and, and do something, right? So I think that's... <clears throat> happened he um this wasn't he it's, it's kind of a coincidence because we had a family friend that i have known since i was a wee little kid um who were missionaries in liberia um and in africa and she just passed away she was 71 years old and so reading her uh, obituary and how she was called to go to Liberia and how that happened. Hi, Steve. We have a flowchart for you to review. Um, <laughs> how that happened, right? She went on a short-term trip. There was a short-term trip presented to her, and she went out and she kind of caught that burden for the Liberian people, right? So I guess another way would be go on a short-term trip. Yeah. You know, things are getting a little more open now right we'll see we'll see if we can get some short-term trips some missions trips going on but i think half the battle for us is just being aware and, and just kind of being open to those ideas because we get so consumed in our world and and it's fine and jobs and houses but you know what is the lord calling us to you know could it be somewhere else so i would just urge you guys to pray and, and think about that and of course we support missionaries here, and we're going to continue to do that. Um, but that doesn't mean that it only has to be through us. There are plenty of people that support other missionaries on their own. Right? And that as well. Any other thoughts on just missions in general? And just a question: like, what? Yeah. <clears throat> like, what would you say are like the top three criteria that uh, a mission, a missionary, or, or a mission is looking to accomplish? I, mean, I understand it's spreading the word so that yeah. may involve translating the Bible. But beyond that, like, what else? I mean, is, is, it, is it a humanitarian type of thing? I mean, is, is it caring for people? Is it feeding? Is it... Yeah. What, what else, in addition to that, like, how do you kind of get your head around what, what all is going to be involved in it? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, the mission itself, I, I, th I would say Great Commission right? Matthew 28. It's, that's not going to change, right? It's going to be the, the making and maturing of disciples wherever you go. So that kind of ties into where you have uh, evangelism, of course, sharing the gospel, right? But you also have the maturing part of it. And then that's where the local church comes in. So really, church uh, planning. yeah, we, we would here agree that the local church is always going to be God's plan A for reaching. So, you know, parachuting into the jungle giving everybody tracks and then running back out like probably not the most effective way right they they're going to need to grow in the faith they're going to need to serve in the faith so 
is it coordinated with the church planning effort as well? What's going? What, what is the the context of the the region anyway? Are there churches? Are there good churches? Can we partner with churches? Do we need to plant new churches? Do we need pastors? Do we need to train them? All that sort of stuff. So definitely making and maturing. But then, yeah, I mean, absolutely. If there's a humanitarian um, aspect to it, you know, that's a big part of it as well. Um, so I think those three things right off the bat. I mean, do they need food? Um, do they need water? Do they need simple medicines like anti-diarrhea or antibiotics or crazy things that we take for granted here, right? That it's are like fatal Samaritan. in other areas. What's that? It's like Samaritan's Purse. Uh, yep. They're feed and, and provide medical care. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and those immediate needs, those, those physical and, and then the gospel gets, gets uh, woven into that. Yeah. I remember, it was our first trip to Haiti, where we went, hiked up the mountain to that oh, tribe, yeah. that tribe, whatever they were up the mountain. From the hotel. From yeah. the hotel. And they were, they didn't have water. They would have to, they, every day they'd have to walk um, an hour to get water. And those people didn't want them to have the water, so they had to do it quickly. And then they'd walk back with, you know, five-gallon buckets of water or something. But they were trying to dig a well by hand. Remember how stinking deep that thing was, man? It was like they were almost there. But, you know, you're sharing the gospel with them. And then they're like, yeah, but we need water. Water, yeah. Like every basic, you know, necessity of things, right? So I had an aunt with my grandmother's sister who was never married. She was on a mission. She was a missionary in India, and I was young. Yeah. But I remember her coming back on furlough and talking and she spent time with young moms with children and helping care for them Yeah. because their they had no husband and she, by doing so she would scare, share the gospel with them yep. and it was something simple. She always didn't want any credit because she just said, I'm, yeah. I'm just helping out the moms and, and the children. Yeah. Well. She would, I just, it was from her, I, from what I remember, because I was like nine or ten when she would come back and talk and stuff like that. And, yeah. Um, yeah, she would take care of the moms and then witness to them. Mm. That's a, you know? an important thing, too, um, right. to have um, right. missionaries that we know personally right. and have them in our homes and talk about them and pray for them regularly. And, yeah, especially us with little kids or kids someday or whatever, right? Grandkids, to be able to continue to talk to them about the role of the church and missions and missionaries, keep it on their keep it on their radar. Yeah. All right, let's talk about some other things with Mr. Patton. He overcame tremendous resistance and suffering. He faced massive resistance on all sides. We talked about what he faced in the field. Uh, you know, cannibals and sickness and malaria and rainy season and all of that stuff. But he also faced massive resistance at home for doing what he was doing. Um, it was the, the refrain that he would be eaten by cannibals and that he was uh, foolhardy and many resisted his efforts. Um, and I'll just read some selections here from his autobiography. Um, Mr. Dixon this guy who he's corresponding with, exploded, the cannibals, you will be eaten 
by cannibals. And Mr. Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are well advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. Cool. He also fought back. Like Patton, like when people came at him for that, he, he pushed back hard. So this is not, he says, yeah, well, you're about to die anyway, pal, and you're going to be eaten by worms. And I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Mic drop. It's just like, he just pushed back. He's like, so what? You're, about, you're an old guy. You're about to die and be eaten by worms. So what? I'm going to go and preach the gospel. Maybe I'll be eaten by cannibals. Same thing, right? So he, he faced that kind of... People also said these people that he was going to preach the gospel to were subhuman. Like they, they were unworthy of the gospel. And also that they, were, they couldn't respond anyway. Like they were basically animals. Like you're going to present to them the gospel of life and they're not going to be able to respond, right? He was also leaving a thriving ministry that he had been a part of in Glasgow in, in a local church. And he comments a little about that at the Green Street Church. This was before he went. Green Street Church was doubtless the sphere for which God had given me peculiar qualifications. Don't miss that he was involved in a local church which qualified him for ministry. Side note. And in which he had so largely blessed my labors, speaking of God, that if I left those now attending my classes and meetings, they might be scattered and many of them would probably fall away that I was leaving certainty for uncertainty, work in which God had made me, made me greatly useful, for work which I might fail to be useful and only throw away my life amongst the cannibals. So he's, he's repeating what people were saying to him. They're saying like, look, you got a thriving ministry here. There are people coming to your classes. They're hearing you preach, right? Who knows what's going to happen if you just up and go preach the gospel to these cannibals thousands of miles away, right? They're probably going to fall away. But he said, he, he refused to be deterred by that. He said, the opposition was st so strong from nearly all, and many of them warm Christian friends, that I was sorely tempted to question whether I was carrying out the divine will or some headstrong wish of my own. This also caused me much anxiety and drove me close to God in prayer. So he felt this, right? He felt this resistance, and it freaked him out. It caused him lots of anxiety, right? Think about that. You know where you're going thousands of miles away. Like, it took him seven months to get there anyway by ship. You don't board a plane and get there in a couple hours. You're going by ship in the 19th century. He knew that. He knew that there were cannibals there. And then, so that's like on his brain. And now you have all these people just telling you, you're doing the stupidest thing in the world. You shouldn't go. But yet, he went anyway. How do we know? Again, with the, how do we know? How do you think he knew? How do you, maybe he just said, you know, we talked a lot about circumstances. Maybe he's like, yeah, maybe these people are right. They're, they're speaking common sense. Maybe I should go. What do you think? I mean, it's kind of speculation. How do you think he was so resolved in what he was doing? Just a spiritual sense? The inward confirmation? I mean, I, I, I don't really know much about him at all, uh, but it sounds to me from what you've read that he was uh, 
Well, I, I guess I mean pray about it. Right, in a broader sense, like yeah. how does anyone know? Like, you know, like pray about it. And yeah. I mean, uh, for for me, I would say just like if if you feel that if you have a sense that there's there's really no other choice but to do this. Yeah. That it's that's yeah. what and you just nothing other things simply fall away. Yeah. And that's what you're left with, and there it is. Yeah. I, it, I would say. My answer, and I hadn't thought about this before, is, is very similar to that. Especially someone going into the ministry or becoming a pastor or something like that. You would typically discourage them from doing that, right? And I think it was Spurgeon that said, only do it if you can't picture yourself doing anything else. Like if you're saying, well, I could be a pastor, or I could just get a job, or I could do this, or I could do that, you're weighing all your options. He would say, like, no. Like, if this is the thing you think about, this is the thing that you can't get out of your brain, this is the thing that you feel passion for, and you can't see yourself doing anything else. So, I would imagine that Mr. Patton felt like that. But So, he had resistance on all sides. He also endured constant sickness. Um, I'll read a little bit. Fever had attacked me 14 times severely. In view of his wife's death, Patton never knew when any of these attacks would mean his own death. So think about that. He had buried his first wife, right, literally, with his own hands in the jungle or wherever he was at that, wherever it looked like. And she died of fever. And so 14 times he would have this sickness with the same kind of fevers. And he's wondering, like, is this going to be the one that's going to take me? Like it took my wife. And leave the second wife. Yeah, and then leave the second wife. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if this was his first trip or a second trip, but um, for example, he was building a new house to get to higher, healthier ground. He collapsed with fever on his way up the steep hill from the coast, and he wrote this. When about two-thirds up the hill, I became so faint, I concluded I was dying, which I don't know why it just strikes me as funny. I'm really tired. I guess I'm going to die. Okay. Here it is. I concluded that I was dying. Just that 19th century way of writing. <laughs> so it's so like lying down on the ground sloped against the root of a tree to keep me from falling to the bottom so he's on a hill he passes out he's like okay I'm dying let me just lie down and die and prop myself exactly prop myself up dying, against this tree do us all a favor go down the hill <laughs> I took farewell if this was one of his only companions, this man named Abraham. So he says goodbye to Abraham. Of my mission work and of everything around, in my weak state I lay, watched over by my faithful companion, and I fell into a quiet sleep. He revived and was restored, but only with great courage could press on month after month, year after year, knowing that fever, knowing that the fever that took his wife and his son lay at the door of him also. So think about that. That's just... And then you have the third thing, of course, constant threat of death. There was that. So resistance from inside and outside, constant sickness, and constant threat of death. 530 in uh, 538, he says, uh, Our continuous danger caused me now oftentimes to sleep with my clothes on that I might start at a moment's warning. My faithful dog, Clutha, would give a sharp bark and awake me. 
God made them fear this precious creature and often used her in saving our lives. So he <laughs> gives his dog props because she was the watchdog and the natives were terrified of the dog anyway. So, yeah. He was not without some assistance. Yes, exactly. My enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or, be, or baffled for the moment. A wild chief followed me around four hours with his musket loaded. And he often directed it towards me. God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he'd not been there. There's a guy pointing a loaded gun at him. And he just gets back to whatever he's doing. Fully persuaded that God had placed me there and would protect me until my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to the Lord Jesus, I left it all in his hands and felt immortal until my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me to more to follow and they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels so he kind of showed a little bit more of that moxie too just like as people would push back on him and call him a, you know whatever this is a dumb idea for doing this right he got bolder and bolder with the natives who tried to take his life he would fight back he would push back he would ignore them he would do whatever he would say that you know, my time is in God's hands and fine, kill me, shoot me, whatever, but I'm just going to keep working. Right? So he had that, that moxie as well in there. But it speaks to us, of course, in our mindset about um, resistance that we encounter, about suffering, you know, everyday suffering, but of course specifically suffering in light of any work for the gospel. Um, resistance when we're doing work for the church or resistance in our own personal spirit as we're growing and changing and killing sin, all of that. Any other thoughts on some of these things that we've read or ideas about resistance and suffering as Christians? He sounds, sounds like a Peter. A Peter, okay. Uh, you know, the bold one, right? Yeah. Uh, the impetuous guy, right? <laughs> Anybody had something to say it was Peter, right? Yeah. Uh, I think he was the spokesman for the group, right? I mean, he yep. was uh, always jumped to the first in the line, yeah. apparently, but he was bold. Yep. Wow. The, 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 the faith. Amazing, the assurance of it. Yeah. faith and, and assurance. Yep. Uh, unwavering. Well, as Americans, when we hit resistance and suffering, what do we automatically think? Stop and yeah, <laughs> and go the other direction. Please stop. Make it stop. Something's wrong. He just kind of seemed to roll with it. He just kind of expected it, right? Again, Peter, right? When uh, trials and temptations come upon you, right? Don't be surprised. I'm totally paraphrasing that verse. As if something strange were happening to you. He had that same mindset. This is part of the game. Part of the deal. Trials and suffering. So... That is so opposite to what we're used to because, you yeah. know, like, again, you're like, okay, I'm going to go do this thing for God, and I want, like, the positive feedback of, like, saving souls and having progress and making yeah. friends and, like, all the communities and churches and stuff. And it's like he, the more negative feedback this guy got, the more he's like, you know, Jesus, woo-hoo. He know? almost, like, fed and, off it, it seemed. Right, yeah. and it's just, it's so contrary to what we want. We want to be like, okay, God's giving me the thumbs up, and I know it because, yay, this is working out. And he spent four years of nothing working out. And there were, you know, like, 
in the book, there were some passages where he's like, oh, I, I, I wish if only people could experience what I've experienced. And you're like, why would anyone want that? You know? Yeah. But he explained that in like the worst of the situations, it's, it's like he felt closer to God than ever before. Yeah. Like, you know, on death's door and being hunted in the middle of the night and, you know, hiding in a tree for hours. And yeah. it's like, I've never been so close to God. Yeah. You know, he's like, if only other people could experience this. It's like he'd, he'd you know, offer that experience to anyone. We're like, okay, you know. Yeah. But, it's, yeah, he's, he's living something completely different and not relying on that positive feedback that, at least as Americans, we're like, yeah, give it me, yay. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. So, so resistance and suffering is not an indication of necessarily things going not according to plan, right? right? Uh, but again, who, what missionary goes out there being like, yeah, martyrdom is part of the plan, you know? Yeah, right. The one's like, who super gung-ho about it. Not, right, not with that attitude of... Right, not if it was like, okay, your missionary journey's beginning and martyrdom is guaranteed in about four days. It's like, right. would you be just as excited if you knew that was the outcome? Yeah, you know? I think the, the book, too... You probably read that part too, set talking about those first missionaries in 18, whatever, that went there and were killed yeah, and eaten instantly. And then even right? He said, cool, now it's baptized in the blood of the martyrs. I claim this whole island for Jesus Christ. <laughs> and we're like, wow, that's not what I would have said. Well, right. yeah, the, the first two were, were both men, missionaries that had gone together. And then they mentioned like this couple, the Gordons, who were also... Later like, on, um, yeah. tomahawked and that to death, yes. you know, and beheaded, and it's like, and I think that happened closer to when he was there. It was like another island that happened yes. on, and it's just like, okay, so he knows it's not like, oh, this is something that happened so long ago. It's like this is happening to other missionaries yeah. elsewhere. Yeah, we think of like Elizabeth Elliot, right, and Jim Elliot, when he was killed. Yeah. So yeah, we have to kind of change our American mindset. A lot in thinking like what I'm called to is going to be easy right or life itself is supposed to be easy and comfortable we know that's not true and he knew that's not true and he didn't seem to be surprised he went into this with eyes wide open and knew that suffering and possibly death was part of the deal and he was okay with it right I, obviously, we're talking about an extraordinary individual yeah. here, like a man of just exceptional faith, right? But that's why we look at these guys, because we can see that they're out there, right? And God calls us to do extraordinary things for him as well. Um, Piper had a really helpful section, I thought, that just talked about where his courage, he kind of speculated based upon his research of... Patton, where he thought his courage came from, and he came up with a couple buckets, and I think they would be helpful for us. We've been kind of all around it, but um, one of the things about where his courage came from, he identified as his father. His father was an exceptional man, and an exceptional man of prayer. And there's this story in the book, and it comes up with some other um, videos and things that I watched about him that his father was so excited for him to go on to the mission field, you know, even knowing where he was going to go. <clears throat> and his father walked with him to the train station and he prayed the entire way, just prayed for him the entire way. And it was very emotional. His dad was crying. He was crying, right? And he got to the point where his father couldn't walk with him anymore. And his father had to stop and he kept walking and his father went up to this hill just to watch him 
continue to walk towards the train station and you know to continue to pray for him but in the book it also talked about seeing his dad in his life of prayer and in, in just the way that he would pray for the lost and pray for even people probably much like these people who hadn't heard the gospel and that affected him greatly the idea that you know his dad was so compassionate for the lost and so Piper identified his dad as one of the possible reason for his courage. Second of all was he had a deep sense of his divine calling. Like that was lodged in his brain and in his heart and he knew it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Right? And if any of you end up in ministry of any kind full time, right, that's got to be lodged in your heart. Like especially things like church planning, pastoral ministry, that stuff like that. You're going to have times where you're like, this isn't working. We should probably throw in the towel. I should probably just go get a job somewhere else, right? But you have to keep coming back to, no, this is, this is what I really believe God has called me to do. So there needs to be that deep sense of divine calling. And a lot of that, too, I believe was worked out through the local church that he was qualified for, he said, and, and, and talked through. A third thing Piper identified was a holy sense of heritage. So Piper, a holy sense of heritage in the church, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Uh, he said that he had the blood of martyrs in his veins. So he, like before he went, like he knew of the missionary focus of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. He knew of the missions movements. He knew of the martyrs already, right? And he was down with that. It emboldened him to do that. Really, in the church too. He, as a Reformed Presbyterian church, there was a strong sense of Reformed theology. There was a strong sense of what you might call Calvinism, right? Which is weird because sometimes you think Calvinism, well, hyper-Calvinists, like why would they go spread the gospel at all? Because aren't they ever, if they're elect, then they're just elect. Why do we need missionaries? And that's an error because that's, we do, of course we need missionaries. The Bible says, blessed are those who bring the good news, right? The blessed are the, the feet of those who bring the good news. Paul says, how will they know unless someone preaches the good news to them? So even though he was a strong Reformed Calvinist who believed God was sovereign over salvation, he knew human responsibility to go. He said, thou hast the key to unlock every heart that thou hast created. Think about that, that he knew that God had the key to unlock every heart that he knew was going to be his. And, and so Calvinism wasn't a hindrance to him, it was the hope. It was kind of like he was on a hunt for the elect, in the sense. As he shared the gospel, the people that were gods, they were going to respond. And turns out, they responded a lot, eventually. It took them years, but they responded a lot. A little quote on... Um, 547 that talks about that. Um, I think we saw some of that too in just the idea of when he was surrounded by uh, people who wanted to kill him, right? That strong sense of God's sovereignty. He's like, you're, you're not going to kill me until God has allotted the time for you to kill me. It's just, you know, then I rest in my Savior's judgment. He says, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I watched all, I saw him watching the whole scene um, this was might have been one of his other encounters, right? 
Peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized I was immortal until my master's work with me was done. Think about that quote. I realized I was immortal until my master's work with me is done. Wasn't going to die until it was appointed time. Wasn't going to die until it was appointed, so there's no sense worrying about it. He wasn't going to die ahead of his time. He wasn't going to die. He was going to die when God planned for him to die, and that was fine by him, right? That's simple, brilliant. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Didn't, um, who was, um, wasn't it Stonewall Jackson had that same thing? He was just fearless in the way that he fought battles because he was such a, and I'm definitely not endorsing Civil War or Southern or slave, but he had that theology, even in battle, that he was like, I'm not going to die until it's my time. So he was fearless in that way. One of them was. I'm pretty sure it was Stonewall Jackson. But yeah, it's, um, we think about, but that doesn't mean we take risks, right? doesn't mean we go and play in traffic and whatever else, right? We, we care for our bodies. We are stewards of our bodies. We, but we understand that God's sovereign over all that. He was truly not afraid to die knowing whenever it was, it was part of God's predetermined plan. So, pretty wild how the Calvinistic Reformed faith actually emboldened him in this way. Right? He was also a man of prayer and a prayer that submitted to God's sovereign wisdom. He prayed one time in his uh, autobiography, protect me or take me home to glory. Whatever you see is best. <laughs> Again, surrounded by people with pointed spears and loaded muskets. Just like, what do, you want, what do you want to do here, God? Am I going to die or are you going to protect me? Whichever, one's, whichever one is your plan, let me know. He, sa he said uh, that we felt that God was near and omnipotent to do what seemed best in his sight. We don't have uh, control, right, all the time, probably none of the time, when our last day is, right? So we entrust that to God, and he's okay with it. But that was the kind of prayer. He would pray in that way with his request, but then leaving them open-handed in that way for God to decide as God felt best, as his plan <clears throat> determined for his glory. So, And I don't often pray like that, right? We go to God with the list of things that we want God to do. Here's what you can do for me today. God, make this situation work out like this, and then take care of this, and do this for this person, and this, this, and this, right? But do we leave room for God's sovereignty and his plan in those prayers? And do we trust him? in the outcome of it. It's like the people that you know that really pray like as the Lord wills or even like yeah. we'll see see you tomorrow. Well if the Lord wills. Yeah. You know, we don't have a guarantee of tomorrow. Reminds me I think Pastor Andy was good. Yep. You know, or yeah. even I think we're even as believers in the way that we pray, we're caught up in being safe and being comfortable and being this and keep them safe, safe, safe. <laughs> You know, yeah. Maybe that's not God's plan. Yeah. Travels safe, safe. Yeah. Hedge of protection. I don't want to hedge. I don't want to Sorry. Tim Hawkins. Tim Hawkins. But I mean, I, I feel like it's where 
we pray as though we're always going to be comfortable or, or that's the Lord wills that we should be comfortable and it's not always the Lord wills that we are going to be comfortable it may be his will that we're going to have suffering yeah you know so yeah it's a it, it doesn't mean we can't always pray for those things but I feel like sometimes it's always it's the emphasis yeah yeah and not leaving that open hand for the Lord to do what he's you know going to do yeah. I mean, think about how we might pray in that situation, right? I mean, wouldn't you be praying things like, get me out of here, save my life, um, <laughs> anything like that? What am I doing here? Yeah, what am I doing? Questioning my life choices, right? But he's, he doesn't pray like that. He prays whatever your will is. And we, of course, see that model in our Savior, to right. live as Christ, to die as gain. Yeah, and Paul, to live as Christ, right? What are you going to do? Kill me? Gain. Okay, cool. I'm going to go see Jesus. Right? And Jesus himself, right? Um, if possible, let this cut pass, but not my will, your will be done. Right? Americans, I think, definitely struggle more to add that second part in there. But your will be done, right? Over my will, whatever that looks like. We're like, here's my will, please make that happen. Which again, like Mel said, I mean, the Lord understands. He understands who we are, understands our weakness, he understands we're human. It's not like he's going to be mad at us for praying a certain way. But we need to expand our prayers in light of who we're praying to. And this, this is a great example of someone who does that. Two other things. He also had a, a certain kind of joy. Uh, he took a lot of of course, uh, refuge and solace and joy in the scriptures and especially the presence of God. The Great Commission again, behold, I am with you always, right? Even to the end of the earth, right? We kind of blow by that part. But for him, that was, that was a big deal. Like, no, I'm here. They got savages all around me who want to eat me. And, you know, malaria and nowhere to sleep or whatever else. But God's here with me in this. Says, Lo, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. I'm sure he felt like he was at the ends of the earth. You saw it on the map. It looked like it was the end of the earth. Nowhere else around. So that the the presence led to a sense of joy. In Psalm 16, we can remember that in your presence is fullness of joy. And that doesn't have any geographical boundaries. And Piper identified, lastly, just his personal fellowship with Jesus. Just that idea. Um, Bridget, I think you mentioned that time he was uh, surrounded by the natives and he climbed a tree or he was in the middle yes. of some bush or something like that. And mm -hmm. they're all around him looking for him. And did he go to sleep? I think he just... Oh, yeah, it was a middle of the night. He was in the jungle <laughs> and they were like hunting through the woods trying to find him to kill him, you know, with that intent. And he was just hiding up in this tree for hours, I assume, till dawn, because it's like Abraham had like hidden him and then yep. run off. Um, and yeah, it was just the idea that he had such trust that it's like, okay, well, if they're going to find me and kill me, okay. But if they're not, this isn't so bad, you know. And it was like he was just, <laughs> I'm whatever God decides, it's okay, you know. And yeah. that's, that's when he felt so close to God that he wished other people could be in the same situation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and how many times maybe in that situation would we be tempted to think that God's gone? Forsaken. He's yeah. embarrassed. He's, he's uh, abandoned me, right? Yeah. 
but then he used that opportunity to have that fellowship with God, that, that presence with God. Yeah, it's remarkable. Any other thoughts? Something that <clears throat> kind of stood out for me in, uh, in, in the way people would, would uh, push back against uh, Pat and, you know, why, why are you doing this? You know, it, 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 yeah. you know, the danger is obvious to understand, uh, you know, the lack of, of comfort. We understand that's easy, but this is just kind of popping into my head now. It's also sort of who you're providing your service in the Lord to. Okay. These are people that he, you don't know at all. It's a culture you're completely unfamiliar with. Yeah. I mean, in this case, it's pretty true. These are people that want to eat you, yeah. literally. I mean, so, like, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's very hard to get your, your head around that. Yeah. Like, how is it that you can, you can, you can bring the light of Christ to, to people that want to immediately do you harm? Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, there's, in lesser degrees, I think we, 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 uh, it's easy to palette that, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's a little more, you know. Well, why, why help these people? Or you know, what's in it? For, what's in it for you with these people? Well, I think. Right. On the one hand, but the other thing is too is it's outside of his kind of family group. This, this is yep. his family's not there. Yep. His 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 neighbors are not there. His his community is not there. He's he's going somewhere completely different and completely new. Yeah. I wonder if he was lonely. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Especially after his wife died and then he was there yeah, for four years. Yeah. Lonely. And yet he had joy. Yeah. He had uh, Abraham, I think, the second trip that was with his wife, or that was the first trip? I think I'm it was sure. the first because he mentioned it in the same breath as like having his dog, you know. And, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but even that's just that's one person. Yeah. Right. And he was, again, constantly, if they weren't threatening him, he said a lot of the times his interaction with the natives would be to literally step between two warring tribes as they were, like, going at it. So if you, could you imagine, like, being a missionary to the inner city and it's like you step between two gangs that are shooting it out? Like, that's what he was doing back then. That was his interaction with the peoples. That's a perfect example. Yeah. Perfect. And I think, Justin, when you were talking about that, it... it it's like, at what point is common sense common sense, and at what point what God's still calling you to? Like, he knew. He was a smart guy. He wasn't going in there saying, oh, it'll probably not happen to me, or maybe that's not what really is going on over there. No, he knew that's what was going on over there, and he right. knew that it could very well happen to him, but still he went, right? And so on one, one hand, the people that were saying those things, you might be eaten by cannibals, they were right. Right, and it could be construed as common sense, but at what point, right? At what point do you work through that and say, "Yeah, no, I'm still going to go to a people I don't know," who might eat me? Who might eat me? <laughs> right, to bring them the gospel. Right, that's got to be an extraordinary sense. One, one other quick note: we yeah. had because uh, I don't know. I think everybody here has met Becky Allaire. Yeah, a, a really exceptional yeah. uh, young woman who's really strong in the faith and, and now is, in California. Yep. Set out there to do really mission work for homeless, and, and then has has found her calling to go to Peru. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. her, her, yeah. her next destination. She's going to a school, a, a university of some sort, getting trained as a missionary specifically. Okay. Um, so you know she's walked through our doors, and and, and it's just it's it's there. And people yeah. get called to this. And, yeah. Uh, and she's given up quite a lot, you know. Of, friendships and relationships and stuff to, mm -hmm. to do this and um, she's very clear on it and yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's very amazing to see that yeah, happen. It, it seems to be and that's 
That's beautiful. It seems to be that if God is calling you to something like that, you're probably not going to miss it. No. Right. Right? And the more time we spend with God, of course, the more time we spend in prayer, the more time we're interested in some of these things and, and look into them, right? Those are the means. And, of course, the local church, right? And the missionaries that we support and going through passages of Scripture that deal with missions and evangelism and stuff, the Lord's going to use all of that to stir your hearts in that. I think the point is, are we going to be obedient, right? Because, you know, Becky could have been like, yeah, probably not. Right? But instead, she was obedient. And then what? We're never going to go wrong being obedient to the Lord. It's not like we're giving up a greater blessing <laughs> to be obedient to the Lord. <clears throat> Always the right thing to do to obey the Lord. In his autobiography, did he speak about as converts were made that there was more Christian camaraderie? You know, I mean, it's not... Yeah, definitely know. toward definitely the second trip. And, I mean, he was there for 41 years. And so as things kind of snowballed and more people got saved and more people got saved, yeah. Absolutely. But that took a long time. Right. Right? Right. And I would imagine that there was still the threat. I mean, the environment didn't get better. No. You're still a white dude in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with, you know, your immunity system that's still going to catch everything that they have. And... Um, of course, there's still going to be other tribes and other things that want to get you. And I'm sure that there was tribes that didn't like other tribesmen or women that were converted. Yeah. So the massacre may have even, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah for different reasons. Right? Yeah. Or simply being Christian. So yeah. But you look at his faithfulness, right, again, 100 years later, it's the dominant religion is Christianity. Wow. It's just, it's crazy to think about how God used him to do that and then start, you know, continue the mission's work and continue the spread of the gospel. So, yeah. All right. Any other final thoughts? Are we encouraged or do we feel like we're not doing anything with our lives? <laughs> <laughs> reading it again when, when he he had a successful inner city mission yeah. in Glasgow with like the poor yep. you know and like so so successful that all you know his Christian fellow brethren whatever were like please don't go please don't go you're throwing your life away so in that sense it's like I, I want to know and the book doesn't tell you yeah. why why leave something so successful that was really changing people's lives yeah to go again the uncertainty yeah you know and it's i don't know because like people are saying oh you know if, if you leave these missions will fall apart you'll lose people you know yeah. et cetera, et cetera. and it's like what was it that gave him the assurance it's like oh, this is it you know that's the scary yeah. thing it's not like there's nothing else for me clearly there was other things he could have been doing like and he was good at it yeah so it, how do you choose you know like he, he yeah. chose and now we see the benefit of it but yeah, what if he had been like those first two guys? You step off the boat and you're dead. Yeah. Like, and still, did that mean it was a failure? If that happened, right? Because, I mean, part of the reason he went in the first place was because those two guys stepped off the boat and got killed. And for some reason, that fired him up because he's like, no, I got to go. It's baptized in blood. So it's like, again, it, yeah, we, we can only, he's not here. We can't ask him. 
but he just must have known beyond a shadow of a doubt to do it. that he was called to do it. You know, certain people have, have this driven personality. Yeah. And you know people that are just driven, you know, and he was consumed by the Holy Spirit yeah. to do what he did. And you know how driven people, it just consumes them yeah. in, in wrong ways, you know, and they, oh, sure. they never yeah. stop. Yeah. He had that drive. Yeah. And I think that's probably all he thought about, all he talked about was the people at those islands. <coughs> I think that that's... My best guess is that he just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. Unique it was singular person. passion. Yeah. Just a unique, gifted. Yeah, it's like God was like, sure, I need you God. to do this. You know. <laughs> it's like okay. Yeah, he had a special anointment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully that encourages you too, just in uh, the ways that God uses people and the boldness, of course, of Mr. Patton. And, uh, that we would continue to follow in some of these things, and especially with regard to missions, to be able to be aware of what's going on, to be able to pray, to give, to serve, to maybe go, whether it's short-term or whether the Lord's calling you somewhere else. So, I think it's a good example of how parents can imprint. Oh, sure. Uh, imprint on their children. I was thinking about that as father and his mother. Yep. You know, and mothers. I mean, yeah. uh, usually behind every great people, a great person, there's a great father and a great mother. Yeah, it's really true. Often it's not lacking. Or a grandfather, you, you look at that. Yeah. And that glue, that glue is there. Yep, agreed. All right, well, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this time that we can um, spend a little bit of time talking about Mr. Patton and just what, uh, what he has done for the gospel. And this region, Lord. We, we thank you for his boldness. We thank you for his obedience. We thank you for the way that you used him as an instrument in your hands to bring about such dramatic change. And Lord, we, we pray that you will continue to impress upon each one of us where you have us and what you've called us to do in the work of the gospel. Lead us and guide us and, and let us be open, Lord, as we think about your sovereignty, as we think about the boldness that that gives us, but also the call for us to go and to share the gospel. Um, and also, Lord, um, your presence with us, the joy that that brings. We thank you for the legacy of a faithful family, and we pray that in whatever situation we're in, that if we're not called to go, that we would be faithful to continue to pray for the lost and pray for the mission's efforts and give towards those things, Lord. And would you use us uh, in whatever part you see uh, in the fulfillment of your great commission. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.